Welcome to Redesigning High School Season 3. I'm uh, Terry DeBow, the Director of Special Projects here at Hawken, and we have some news. Uh, first things first, for those return listeners, we're switching up the structure a bit. Uh, my co-host, Julia Griffin, is now the co-co-host. Uh, she's busy directing the brand new Mastery School of Hawken, which opened in uh, September. And she's going to be uh, sharing podcasting duties with Garrett Libby, who is Hawkins Associate Head of School for Program. So welcome, Garrett. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I think it's going to be great working with you. Uh, first, I think you're great. And uh, second, we're going to expand the focus of redesigning schools so that we explore issues that affect families and educators across all grade levels. And so you're going to bring a big and valuable perspective. So um, we appreciate that. Do you have any thoughts about how all of Hawkins doing from pre-K through 12 in the current day? Uh, I think we're all off to a great start. Uh, we're just really excited to be back and I think excited to launch this podcast and talk a little bit more about what innovation looks like in the midst of a pandemic because we certainly are seeing that look different across all different grade levels and it's um, providing some really exciting opportunities and pleasant surprises. Yeah. Well, that's the third bit of news is that we're six months into a global pandemic that's turned all of our lives upside down. I'm not sure if everyone knew that. So uh, that's part of what we're going to do in season three. We're going to discuss the ramifications of COVID. Um, and we wanted to start that by bringing in our head of school, Scott Looney, uh, who's been on the podcast many times before. Um, and we're going to talk about the decision to open school in person earlier this month. Um, and uh, I know, Garrett, you were deeply involved in all of that. So you too can uh, bring a lot of insight into this. So first of all, thank you for coming back, Scott. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back on. Awesome. All right. Well, let's let's get to uh, the first question. And, and this one's for Scott. Um, can you just walk us through the why first? You know, so when you thought about everything involved in reopening, why did you think it was so important to do? Sure. The, the, the decision to reopen, the short answer is we, we reopened because we could and because being in three dimensions with each other as, as a community matters. Um, the longer, more complicated question is there was no way to do that without trading risk. You know, it, it, the decision to reopen really was a, um, a back and forth around relative physical safety versus mental health and, and mission safety. And what I mean by that is that obviously the safest thing you can do is stay at home and, and minimize your interactions with anyone in the outside world. That, that is the maximal way to have physical safety. Well, that would require remote learning. That was a choice. It was an option. Many schools made that choice. I respect their, that. Uh, we made a different choice, um, which was to open school, but provide the opportunity for families who, who didn't or couldn't uh, be back in school to be remote. And about 90% of our families chose to come back, about 10% chose to, to uh, learn remotely, which put our faculty in a position to have to be hybrid teachers this year, uh, which I suspect we'll talk about as a source of inspiration for innovation. However, um, the big push, for, I think, for our administrative team in making this decision was what would be lost if we went through a whole year in remote? And, and the relative risk to our primary uh, consumer, which is the kids. Uh, this is just factual. Um, in the state of Ohio, a teenager is 320 times more likely to die of suicide than COVID. So the relative, and I believe in the research would support it, that social isolation has uh, per, pronounced and, and damaging effects on people's psychology. 
So the idea that we needed to be open for our kids, um, not just for their educational development, but actually for their psychological and uh, social emotional development was a compelling argument. Then the question became, how do we protect the people who are at highest risk? Um, in some cases, it was by telling them not to come to work or not to come to school. In other cases, it's come to work and come to school with modified duties. And in some cases, it's come back to work in schools with similar duties, but with a deep understanding of a set group of safety protocols. And Garrett was the point person at Hawken for designing and building and then ultimately helping to train everybody on those safety protocols. So there's a, a whole mix of ideas there, that there's a physical safety and you know the physical education that they're getting, but there's this concern for their social emotional health. Garrett, I'm curious, like when it comes to, I work in the high school and the mastery school is a high school and we've, I've seen all of that up close. What went into preparing lower and middle schools for reopening? And, and are those concerns, you know, the same ones that you had? I, I, the short answer is yes, they were the same concerns um, in some ways, but I think one other layer that we took into consideration as we were thinking about reopening and prioritizing how we were going to reopen if we couldn't figure out how to get everyone back was what we learned last spring in remote learning, which while it's not ideal for anyone, it was the hardest on our littlest people. Uh, it's very difficult for lower school students uh, and for what teachers do with our lower school students to happen in a remote way. And so we went into part of the summer when we were at the beginning really saying, if we have to prioritize kids that we're going to bring back, we're going to work really hard to get our youngest members of the community back. Um, and then I think uh, many of the challenges that the lower and middle schools face were similar to the uh, upper school when it came to getting us all here and what we had to think about. And Scott referred to some of it, but I actually think back to May, and there was an article that came out from Atul Gawande in The New Yorker, where he really articulated five areas that we had to think about in order to make this happen. And there are three that I think come to mind, obviously, for every industry and every person um, was around hygiene, screening, and masks. And that was really for us about, you know, supply chain issues, keeping up with what the research was saying and what the recommendations were and crafting protocols to fit those. But I think the other two that he talks about were the ones we dug into the most and Scott sort of referenced. One was the distancing piece. But I think the last one that we spent a lot of the latter half of our summer thinking about was the culture piece. And so, you know, the distancing is really the physical distancing. And as Scott said, we had to analyze every single space in the school. We had to completely rethink how we thought about those spaces. We've got students that are in classes in our dining room. We have students that are having classes in our gyms. We have open common areas that are now classrooms. So we really had to rethink how we thought about the spaces we had and how we were gonna allocate them. And then at, we had to really think about then layering staffing on top of that. So not only faculty that we needed to be able to accommodate during the pandemic for their own personal health needs, but then also thinking about what does a flexible system look like? So how do we increase our surge capacity, right? So when we have children that are gonna be absent for long periods of time or faculty that are gonna be absent for long periods of time potentially, what does that flexible support system look like so that we can have 
a teacher in a toddler room that, you know, has a backup when, you know, child has a temper tantrum or a child has to go to the nurse. It doesn't look like our upper school. If a child has to go to the nurse in there too, they need an adult with them. And so what does our staffing look like down there? And then I think the last piece was really digging into the culture piece and how do you create a culture of commitment versus a culture of compliance? Because I think compliance really, um, it encourages us to do the minimum just to get by. Uh, and that's really not enough to stop the spread, right? We need more accountability and we really needed to try and create a culture of commitment where there was more of an internal code of conduct. Um, among our faculty and among our students. So we dedicated a lot of time to thinking about that uh, at the end of the summer and how we create that with our faculty, but also with our families. Uh, and then I think really digging into the hybrid teaching model and what does that need to look like for a lower and middle school student versus an upper school student? And how do we hold true to what's essential to Hawken um, and make that technology enabled? and also take advantage of the outdoors and ways to make connections using our outdoors, which we know in our pandemic situation, it's, it's safer to be outdoors. So those are a, just in a three or four minute nutshell, a lot of what we thought about. Yeah, obviously a lot going on uh, in the process. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the culture part, you know, as a faculty member in the high school, um, you know, it, it, it felt very different coming back to school, right? So uh, there are there's signage everywhere where we're how we're supposed to walk, where we're supposed to walk, how many people in a room together. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the techniques you use to create a culture of commitment that wasn't just about rule following? What I would say is that, um, you know, our, our organizing principle as a school since our founding is the idea of fair play. And I, so we, this was a good opportunity to appeal to that. You know, you can't make an argument with teenagers that the reason you should be safe is for your own health. They think they're going to live forever. They know that statistically speaking, they're, they're not highly likely to get really sick. The appeal was, you know, it's for the safety of your older faculty, your parents, your grandparents, other people's grandparents. And if you believe in fair play, um, you need to keep the virus out of your own body because actually you're going to be asymptomatic and asymptomatic carriers are the most dangerous. So, so you have an obligation to others. So this, this framing of you have an obligation to others is our primary messaging. It's not, you know, keep yourself safe. Um, that's true, we want, certainly want people to do that, but keep the virus out of our community is more of a, 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 is a more compelling frame for the kinds of people who, you know, came here because they think fairness matters. And so, so you know, it doesn't mean out of, out of a community of 2000 people, we're not gonna have people who aren't buying in or who, who do it. But I think there's a lot of positive peer pressure, both in the adult world and the kid world, if the vast majority buy into this idea of let's keep the virus out of our community. And, and, and one of the things we did was to make it clear that COVID safe behavior has to be beyond the boundaries of the school day. And, and you know, I'm sure people are not, 100% attending to that. But I think, um, I think so far they're doing a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious now, uh, as a pivot, um, how you think this moment as challenging as it is might actually encourage 
significant redesigns of practices and maybe a reshaping of priorities around schools. So not to make lemon out of a terrible batch of, or, or lemonade out of a terrible batch of lemons, uh, but what are, what are you seeing that might uh, give signals that maybe we're seeing some redesigns? I think the piece that I was speaking right at the end about in terms of thinking about hybrid teaching and technology enabled pedagogy in a way that we haven't thought about before is really, really interesting. I think it, uh, if, I think one of the things we're trying to pivot to right now is to get beyond sort of the lowest level of Maslow's when it comes to hybrid teaching, which is just like, do I have the right cord plugged into the right piece of technology and really start to move up that chain to a place where we could really be not just surviving in hybrid learning, but really thriving in it. And we're just starting to think about as a whole school, going back to the roots of hybrid learning, before you had to do it, why did people choose to do hybrid learning? And what were really the benefits of that pedagogical approach in addition to what you were doing in person? And I think it really does offer some compelling pieces that align with where we want to go as a school around personalization and choice and allowing kids to be creative about how they work during their day and what that looks like. Um, and I think we're just starting now that we're about a month in mm -hmm. to look at what those opportunities might be. And I think I, I'm excited to see where we are in a couple months from now in terms of what we've discovered and what it's allowing students to do who are both here in person, but also remote. Yeah. I certainly have felt the pressure on, from as a teacher to figure out how to do it more than just, you know, to get by, but it does open up opportunities. But that's all in the context of a pandemic. And so I think that's one of the major challenges that I felt is how to be creative when it feels like, you know, there's also this other force out there. So I give teachers a lot of credit. I don't know if uh, down the road, do you think it's reshaping priorities at all in terms of how schools or how Hawken in particular prioritizes certain parts of the student experience? I do. I think that, and Scott sort of alluded to this earlier, um, that we had to really think about the components that were essential when we were coming back and how do we prioritize those. And I, I do think what we realized was the connections that faculty and students make and students make with each other, as well as the opportunities to collaborate together and to take their learning and apply it in collaborative groups was um, where the really exciting learning and where Hawken really sets itself apart in many ways. And so trying to think about sort of how does hybrid learning potentially allow us more opportunity for those pieces to happen, um, I, I think is really exciting. And I think we do have some faculty who are starting to get to a place where they can play a little bit with that. And I do think that's going to, it could really shift um, how we do school. Okay. Well, as we close here, I've got two final questions. You can figure out who wants to answer which, but um, the first is uh, what advice would you give to a school working on reopening? You know, not every school has had the opportunity to reopen yet. So what advice would you give? And second, do you have an example, a specific thing that you've seen in a classroom or that a faculty or students are doing that reminded you about why we do this work in schools in the first place? So advice and uh, anything you've seen that reminded you of our higher purpose. Uh, the first advice that I'd give is um, think about uh, everything you do 
as a series of first generation drafts. You know, if you try to commit to getting it all right up front, you'll drive yourself crazy. Um, so, and, and, and this sounds terrible and it's the exact opposite of the ethos we've been working with since I got here, but lower your standards for a little while to give people space to learn and grow um, uh, with the understanding that after we get out of phase one, there'll be phase two, three, three, and the standards are gonna go back up to where they've always been. But the idea that we're, oh, we're gonna do everything as good as we always have in the middle of a pandemic um, is an unfair ask. And so I would say, give people some kind of incremental on-ramp. It's why we pushed school back two weeks. So we had two full weeks to learn and practice the protocols, not feeling like we had a you know, two hour seminar and then had to be good at them. So I think be patient, you know, realize that this is a once in a hundred year event, not a, a minor inconvenience and give people the space to grow. Uh, I will tell you that the, the irony of crisis is that there's been less complaint about things at Hawken in the first month of school than in any month I've ever been here because people know everybody's doing the best they can and everybody's showing up and everybody's given what they can and what they can isn't the same. Some people can give in Herculean ways, but other people's bandwidth and capacity is, is being absorbed by their personal challenges that the pandemic is thrust upon them. And, it, and in an empathetic and humane community, people recognize that and they step up where they need to and they, uh, they forgive when they need to and they adjust. I think the real, uh, so I think that idea of, an, of some kind of psychological incremental on-ramp to this challenge is, is what I would encourage leaders to think about. You know, schools like ours tend to have very, very high standards. They do tend to be full of uh, perfectionistic types um, who don't like to do a little less than they know is capable. But right now, people's psychological health, their sense of community and culture has to precede sort of all of the other normal goals that we have. Um, we'll get there, but if we don't attend to, you know, using Garrett's words, the kind of bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, safety, security uh, first, we can't get back to the top of the pyramid, which is where we generally like to live. And so I think that, so I think that's the big one is just, you know, give people space to incrementally learn to be good at this. Yeah, great. Well, so any highlights, Garrett, do you have any specific things? I have a couple actually. Um, I think one in terms of reminding you about why we do this work. And I was having a conversation with one of our directors yesterday and both of us were saying, you know, this is not the way, what our jobs look like right now is not our favorite, yeah. <laughs> but we went into education because we love children and we love to watch and help children grow and learn. And she get, she said to me, I get at least an email every single day from a parent that is just unadulterated. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, Thank you. My children are so happy to be back. They are so glad to be here. I don't know how to thank you for all that you all are doing. That doesn't happen, as Scott was saying, that you know, he's talking about lack of complaining. We also don't get lack of complaining is one thing, but full out praise on a daily basis from family after family also doesn't really happen that often. And I think it is this year, and I think families feel that. So I, that's one. But I'd also say it's really amazing to get to walk through the school and see the creativity and innovation of teachers just looking a little different. And the example I think of is I was walking by 
our chapel space where all the pews have been taken out and it's just one big open almost gym-like space where our music classes are taken and we know music is sort of a hard subject in a pandemic and I walked by and there was this Maroon 5 song blaring and I so I kind of paused and stopped and every kid in the room was sitting there listening to Maroon 5 but the teachers had you know, the notes and the rhythms of the song and the kids were all pounding out the rhythms on drums with drumsticks on their laps. And I just thought to myself, this is a, this is a chorus class right now. And this is what they're doing. And it was fun. The kids were having a great time. And I just thought to myself, wow, like the creativity and the passion that our teachers have for their subject is what's going to get us through this. They're going to find ways to share that passion with their children in their classes. And that to me was a highlight of that day and also really first carried me on for multiple days after that. And I think that's reminds you why you're here. You're here for the kids and you're here because you are consistently humbled by the faculty and the creativity and passion that they have for the work they do. Right. Well, that is a great great image to, to end on. So, well, thank you guys for joining. Uh, we're going to keep talking, having this conversation because I've got a feeling it's not ending anytime soon, but uh, we'll keep working at it. Um, so thanks for joining. Um, I'm really excited about season three and where it's going to take us. Uh, so we will continue to have these conversations. Um, all right. Always thanks to uh, Nick Fletcher, who is our editor, puts these things together. If you guys like the podcast, please review it on iTunes or wherever you listen. Um, and you can follow Redesigning School on whatever social media channels you like. And you can go to the website and sign up for the newsletter and all that, redesigningschool.org. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining. And thanks, Scott and Garrett. Thank, Thank you. Jake.